Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we are really excited to talk to Mark Dreyer. Formerly a reporter with Sky Sports in the UK and Fox Sports in the US, Mark has been based in China since shortly before the 2008 Olympics, where he has worked with a number of media outlets, both domestic and international. A regular commentator and analyst on the booming Chinese sports industry, Mark is also in charge of marketing and communications at the American Chamber of Commerce in China. In this discussion, we take a quick look back at the 2008 Olympic Games and the impact it has had on China. We'd look at China's performance in Tokyo and what Beijing can learn from it, performance expectations both for China's athletes and the games themselves next year, and what success might look like, and a breakdown of how China's cultural personality impacts the development of team sports versus individual sports, and which has a brighter future. Enjoy. The middle class in China, as they've become more comfortable and they've become less dependent on the younger generation to, to support them in their old age. They've wanted more for their children. They they look at their children and the pressures they're under. They look overseas and they see, you know, that sports is is part of a, a more holistic, well-rounded education. And they thought, well, you know, we can have a bit of everything. We can still do well academically. We don't have to be number one in everything, but sports can contribute to that, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. And that sort of mindset has has sort of seeped into the middle class. Now when you're talking about China's middle class, which is estimated at you know, somewhere between 300 and 400 million people, that's a lot of people who are changing their mindset. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So as we usually do, a quick introduction to yourself, your background and how you ended up involved in sports and in China. So my background is in sports television. I used to work for Sky Sports in the UK for five years as a, as a soccer reporter. And then I was actually over in the US based out of New York for, uh, for Fox Sports, which, what was actually then the Fox Soccer Channel. And my, uh, my wife was, uh, was setting up a company that was partly based in China, partly based in the US. And, and it was the end of 2007 and the Olympics were coming. And, and I'd always wanted to, uh, to cover an Olympics, the, the 2008 Beijing Olympics, of course. And so we just thought, hey, let's just go to China for a year. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, we could always move back if things didn't work out. So that's how I ended up in China, uh, essentially to cover the 2008 Olympics. Um, and kind of forgot to, to leave when, when, everything, when everything wrapped up like everyone else. And so I've been based here ever since. I've actually been lucky enough to cover the three Olympics as an accredited journalist. So 2008, 2010 and 2012. And, and they were sort of... Uh, 
for me, it was sort of uniquely three home Olympics. I was living in China at the time. I'm actually half Canadian. So the Vancouver Olympics in 2010 was, was, uh, was nice. And then uh, you can probably tell from the accent, uh, the other half is, is British. So the London 2012 Olympics uh, completed my trilogy there. So um, still in China, still kind of been covering uh, the, the sports industry here for, from my arrival at the end of 2007. Now, you were lucky enough. I actually came back to Canada during 2008 and missed those Olympics and then went back to China at the end of 2008 after the Olympics were over and missed the Vancouver Olympics. I have had no luck in attending <laughs> Olympics. So I will have to rely on you and your information, your knowledge and your experience with them. So why don't we dip into that? Why don't we take a quick look back, if you don't mind, a, a look back at the Beijing 2008 Olympics yeah. and the impact that it had on China, both and let's go for the, a trifecta using the word that you used, both economically or I don't know how to say both for for a triple triple prong approach here, but economically, culturally and athletically impacting China. Well, let me start with economically. There are Olympic historians who could probably cover this better than I could, but these days, the Olympics don't tend to make you a whole lot of money. Um, and so I don't think, you know, that that was never really a priority uh, for, from China's point of view in terms of hosting the 2008 Olympics. Now, there have been Olympics, you know, you look at L.A. Uh, 1984, and that kind of changed the model. Um, going back a little bit, you have the, the you know, the Montreal uh, Olympics and, and the Big O, which uh, Canadian listeners would, would be familiar with, and, and the, the 30 years of debt that that, that Olympics cost them. Um, but these days, people uh, spend a huge amount of money. And that's why more recently we've had uh, struggles to actually have host cities bidding for games. Um, that kind of ties into to 2022. And, and there was actually only a choice between two cities, Almaty and Kazakhstan and Beijing uh, here, because all the other host cities had had dropped out. But economically, uh, the Beijing itself in 2008 didn't really generate a whole lot of cash. But that wasn't uh, that wasn't an issue whatsoever. It was very much seen as a coming out party for China onto the world stage. I think it was pretty successful in terms of in terms of that goal. China uh, economically had been doing extremely well since uh, you know, the very end of the 70s with um, uh, 78, 79, the, the start of China's uh, reform and opening up policy. And so we had decades of uh, breakneck economic growth, you know, a bit of a cliche, but it, but it's, but it's also true. Uh, and so it was kind of capping that economic growth, even if the Olympics themselves, uh, didn't really do so much for the country. So, and, you know, culturally and, and athletically, it's, it's a different story. I think the, the soft power benefits of 2008 have been well-documented. I think they were pretty successful. I think the world saw, a different side of China that that many people hadn't seen for the first time. They still had these images of of, of China from you know the sixties, seventies, eighties, and so on, uh, very old fashions. And so they saw a very modern China with fantastic performance. You know everything was in place, everything was done uh, fantastically well in terms of a production um, and athletically. You know they top they top the medal tables. It's the only time that that China has done that. Um, in 2008, China won 51 gold medals. Now, there's always a little bit uh, uh, over the years. They actually lost three of those for, from doping offenses. So it's still it's now in the history books as uh, as 48. But still, 
they were number one. Um, and I think, you know, that, that has to be athletically has to be a fantastic success. We saw in Tokyo more recently, it was a, it was a, a neck and neck battle with the U S for the top of the medal table, which the U S uh, just managed to edge at the end. But, uh, Beijing, you always have a, a that home advantage with with uh, with your host games. Uh, China certainly got that in two thousand eight, and, and athletically, I think uh, dominated is is probably a fair word to use. How did China react to the most recent uh, Tokyo Olympics? You know, like in the U.S. or in North America. I mean, U.S. is where we really tracked it, but the, we know the ratings were down, um, you know, ac- across the board. Um, and and I'm pretty sure, I, even personally, I have to say that I, I just didn't find myself um, all that up to speed and knowledgeable about what was going on. And you know what? To be honest, some time difference does play into that. You know, a lot of things were happening throughout the middle of the night. What about in China? You know, uh, did recent COVID outbreaks in China, like in Nanjing, affect interest in the in the Tokyo Games? What was the perception in China of, you know, how the Tokyo Games were executed and put on as far as a show? I don't think that that recent outbreaks kind of had any impact from 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 what I can see. You talk about the time difference, very difficult for a Western audience, but perfect for, for, for those of us here in China. Uh, Japan is just one hour ahead. So. You know, we were able to watch pretty much everything wall to wall from morning, uh, noon and night. So from that perspective, uh, it was it was fantastic timing. And of course, with the the 2022 Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing, there is, of course, renewed focus on the Olympics as a spectacle. But they've always been a big deal here in China. So uh, I haven't yet been able to, to get kind of concrete viewing figures. That always takes a little bit of time to, to come out. And some of the data in China, of course, is is. Um, you know, it's not quite as reliable as it might be in other places. But my sense is that that people were very much into the into the Olympics. You know, anecdotally, people who are not really into sport were posting about it on their their WeChat and social media and so on. And so, so everyone's kind of following what, what's talking about what, what everyone is talking about. And of course, that's dominated by by Chinese success. So, you know, the the the, the dozens of gold medals that that China won in in Tokyo. Of course, that's going to be uh, with with a couple of exceptions. That would have been the 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 main reaction in terms of the, the interest of uh, uh, from from China in the Tokyo Games. Now, the twenty two Winter Olympics are coming up in Beijing, back in the spotlight. What sports do you think or are you hearing or feeling that Chinese citizens are going to be most excited about? I would generally say it's a little bit too early to tell uh, just because I think with any Olympics, you know, they, they come on these these four year cycles. Of course, this is slightly different because we're just six months from the Tokyo uh, Games when, when we're, we're heading straight into Beijing. Uh, but there's always in terms of the individual stars because those Olympic cycles are so long, there are very few that follow from, from cycle to cycle. China is, is very, very good at the Summer Games, less so at the Winter Olympics. It's almost always they've got the vast majority of their, of their medals. I think 10 of their 13 gold medals are in short track speed skating. So that is, as you would expect, that, that is where there's a lot of interest um, uh, for, from the Chinese people when it comes to the Winter Olympics. There's been, uh, you know, some success in in figure skating. Uh, also, the, there's, there was a there was a, a speed skating on the, the long form gold medal as well over the years. Freestyle skiing is another area that that China is beginning to make some inroads. Effectively, they convert 
uh, former gymnasts put them put them on skis, and it's been quite successful. They've uh, they've they've been in amongst <laughs> the medals. It kind of sounds crazy, but actually, it it, it has worked for them. Um, mm-hmm. There are, there is one athlete in particular who I think is going to grab a lot of uh, attention. She is called Eileen Gu or Gu Eileen to, to use her Chinese name. She used to compete for the. American team on the uh, on the youth squads, and she has uh, naturalized as a Chinese athlete. Her her mother is from Beijing. Her father is uh, is is American, and uh, she is a freestyle skier. She's she's very good. She won some medals at the uh, X Games, so she's right at the top of, of the world standings there, uh, freestyle skier. So you know, not only is she very very talented, she's uh, she's glamorous. She's got umpteen modeling contracts it seems just in the last few months so everyone is kind of getting very excited about her and if she can win gold i think that would uh, catapult her to to uh you know to to stratospheric levels here in terms of uh in terms of sporting popularity let's dive into the particular sports that resonate the most in china and oddly enough why some maybe don't i'd like to have a a longer form conversation in and around that because i think there are so much interwoven cultural um infrastructure uh you know nationalist kind of uh of goals uh all involved in what sports are really you know well received and popular versus those that aren't so let's talk a little bit about which ones resonate the most in china Maybe you can explain a little bit more about how and why and how did they come to be more popular? Uh, why are they more popular? And how is it that, you know, the the winter and summer sports can be so different? Maybe even just weather patterns, geography, you know, for those who have never even been to China, maybe we can give a lay of the land and just lean in a little bit on which sports and why are more popular than others. Sure. Well, let me start with um, let me start with the summer Olympic sports. I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to discuss here. I think, as you might expect, a lot of it comes down to success. So, the vast majority of success that China has had in the Olympics, I believe, seventy five percent of its medals have been won in just six sports. So, table tennis, weightlifting, shooting, gymnastics, diving, and badminton. Now. You think, I think a lot of people think table tennis for sure and diving, they've been dominated by the Chinese, um, very, very successful uh, um, in terms of those sports. You look at something like shooting. Now, look, I love the Olympics. There's almost any sport that I could watch nonstop if it's on. Shooting is, wow, it's a, it's a tough watch. I have, to be, I have to be honest. You know, you've got people basically not making a move for 20 seconds and then there's a tiny little bit of movement and then uh, there's a, the score registers. But, you know, when, when your country, when your athletes are winning gold medals, it does make it that much more exciting. Um, in the UK, you know, when, when, when uh, Great Britain suddenly got very good at cycling, well, then we we're all cycling experts and people were watching uh, the, the track cycling like never before. And certainly in the ways that they wouldn't have done in previous Olympics. So, you know, that's understandable. People like to celebrate their own success. And I think that patriotism, that nationalism uh, is, is more of a factor in China than it would be in other countries. And I think that is, is, is very important to understand. Of course, everyone's watching on on CCTV, the the national state broadcaster here. So whatever they are showing um, does dominate does dominate the conversation. And you know they're they're showing not just the the shooting gold medals, but then the the all the different gold medals kind of on repeat here. There was a fantastic, uh, really interesting episode 
Su Bing Tian is a is a sprinter in China, and he's pretty popular now. I've been, to be honest, I've been a little bit harsh on Su Bing Tian over the last few years because I felt that the Chinese media have have hyped him to a level that that his talent hasn't really deserved. If I'm being completely honest, um, it felt like um, the Chinese media were looking for a replacement for a Yao Ming, for Li Na, for Liu Xiang, the hurdler from from a few Olympics ago, and they hadn't really got a star to replace. And so they'd anointed Su Bing Tian kind of before he deserved it. But in the semifinals of the men 100 meters, um, uh, for those of those of the listeners who, who viewed that, he had an absolutely stunning race. 9.83 seconds. He qualified for the final as the fastest. So he's in, in the center lane. It was a stunning, stunning uh, performance. It was uh, eight one hundredths of a second quicker than he'd ever done before. And for me, that was the first time that he'd really justified that hype. But it was an open field. He he um, he put himself up there as a genuine contender. Now, unfortunately, two hours later, we had the final, and he didn't do so well. Um, but he had also he had already made history as the first Asian male to get in the men's one hundred meter final. And his performance was heralded to such an extent. It was really interesting because there's all this talk about an obsession with gold in China. But Su Bing Tian's performance, I would say, was was probably celebrated more than the vast majority of the the 38 gold medals that that China won. In fact, he was selected as the flag bearer um, and he didn't even win a medal. So that kind of tells you uh, that it's not always just about it's not always just about gold. You know, the people, I think, recognize that this was a blue ribbon event at at the Olympics. Uh, It was it was not something like shooting, which is very much a niche sport that, that a lot of people don't really concentrate on. And his performance in in one of the, the most fiercely competitive uh, um, competitive disciplines was uh, was recognized and, and, and heralded, I think. So so that was really interesting to see. Culturally, they haven't overly invested in sports. You look at the way the U.S. Runs. I mean, the alma mater of universities who are successful come back and donate in the millions, usually around the sports programs. This is the hub of 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 the the fan base and the interest and the amount of attendance at college sports games and like down into high school and high school sports. They invest heavily. It is a huge part of not just the, the the culture, but of of the sports, of the professional sports. These are the training grounds. This is it's so heavily invested and primed and pushed. And sportscasters will talk about what high school certain players went to to continue to get that grassroots feel in those geographical areas. But you know, is is China? Going to move in that direction? Are they becoming that interested with sports? Well, let me take it back a little bit. So after the the 2008 Olympics, I, to be honest, it was a, there was a bit of a lean period in terms of sports. You know, the Olympics uh, and sports, of course, but it was far more than just about sports. It was every bit as much about politics as it was about sports. Um, but there was there was a bit of a dip, and and then probably until 2011, when Lina first won the French Open tennis. Uh, that kind of picked things up again. Um, and then really around 2014 is when we kind of saw renewed interest in sports. And and, and again, this was, uh, we, I, I often talk about sort of the three threads here. It's sports, politics, and and, and business or, or, or the economics of, of, of everything. And those three threads are kind of uh, inextricably linked. Now, the reason 
sports got renewed interest in that time is because as the economy was was beginning to slow after all that, that those years of double digit growth, the Chinese uh, policymakers were looking for a new driver for economic growth. And they looked at the US, as you mentioned, and saw that that the sports industry accounted for roughly 3% of, of US GDP. And they looked at China and thought that it was a fraction of 1%. So they thought, well, look, here's a huge new interest sector that we could create. We could create this sports industry uh, and it ticks so many boxes. You've got domestic consumption, which is something that they were obsessed about at the time. Uh, it's creating a, a healthier uh, and, a, and a happier society. You just got more people um, you know, going to sports and getting involved in sports. You've got a healthier society. So that's less uh, you know, healthcare pressures and, and so on. So like I said, it ticks so many boxes. And after 2015, we've kind of seen different waves of sports interest. Soccer, football was was sort of the, the first one. There was a big 50-point policy plan put out in, uh, in March of 2015. And then we saw, of course, um, winter sports with uh, as soon as the, uh, the, the 2022 games were awarded to China uh, uh, several years ago. Then, of course, winter sports got some attention. We've also seen a wave in, in sort of what, what they refer to here as mass participation sports. So running, cycling, swimming, you know, marathons, uh, fitness, just going to the gym, that sort of that sort of stuff. I guess what the what the Western world would would just um, generally see as, as exercising. But, uh, you know, here here it's kind of been labeled as, you know, this sort of mass participation sports. So in terms of the money, um, it's a very, very different model. But once the government says green light to this sector, whether it's football, whether it's winter sports, whether it's, uh, you know, fitness and, and, and health and exercise, then the money flows in from pretty much everywhere. A lot of it is is sort of speculative money, this hot money where people are basically trying to make a quick buck. But it does mean that money is kind of flowing in. On top of that, when you have the Olympic programs, where the budgets are, to be honest, almost infinite uh, it, it compared with with the vast majority of other countries, then China can have some some pretty big success if it wants to. Uh, but there's different levels here. You, you know, there's success at the Olympics and then there's just wider development of the sports industry and, and I think everything in between. So uh, there's certainly a lot going on, but I think that's more of an overview of how things have progressed over the last uh, decade or so. Would you say... It's growing sport in China faces an uphill battle due to the headwinds from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, who have at least traditionally wanted to keep the young person's focus more on academics, less on outside distractions such as chasing sports dreams or artistic dreams? I would say yes and no, and here's why. Historically, absolutely, that has been the case. Uh, you have, as you, as you rightly mentioned, you know, the, the grandparents, the four grandparents, the two parents, all focused on usually just that one single child. Uh, and th this person basically has to be successfully uh, successful academically in order to finance the rest of the family into their retirement, uh, the huge pressures involved there. And you have upwards of 10 million 
graduates every single year competing in the same job market. I mean, the pressures are just unbelievable. So sports would historically have been seen as a distraction to uh, to academic success and academic success that would lead to a you know a, a sustainable and, and reliable job and, and and financial stability and so on. However, we have seen some cultural shifts, and this, these have been fairly slow moving shifts. But the middle class in China, as they've become more comfortable and they've become less dependent on the younger generation to, to support them in their old age. They've wanted more for their children. They, they look at their children and the pressures they're under and think, well, this is not a, not a great life uh, for people to be under. And so they, they do, they look overseas and they see, you know, that sports is, is part of a, a more holistic, well-rounded education. And they think, well, you know, we can have a bit of everything. We can still do well academically. We don't have to be number one in everything, but sports can contribute to that, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. And that sort of mindset has, has sort of seeped into the middle class. Now, when you're talking about China's middle class, which is estimated at, you know, somewhere between 300 and 400 million people, that's a lot of people who are changing their mindset. Of course, you still do have those academic pressures. You still need to have a job. You still want your child to be successful. You still have a lot of families thinking that uh, even though we're able to have more than one child at the moment, it's become too expensive. And so we still have uh, uh, single child families. And so there's a lot in that. I would say that it has been changing, has been shifting in a more positive direction as those uh, parents, particularly, as I said, in the middle classes, uh, have have wanted other things, uh, just, just a more balanced life for their children, I think. But, you know, tradition is 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 tradition is hard to shake um especially here in china and so when push comes to shove often the academics do still take precedence okay those were great fantastic thank you very very much for those uh, comments around potential headwinds i want to maybe talk what about something that could potentially be considered tailwinds which is a growing fitness and nutritional awareness is that something, am I right? Is there a growing understanding, desire for general overall better conditioning, better physical fitness, which then involves exercise, getting out, playing sports of some nature, somewhere, somehow? And do you see that as potentially having some uplift towards helping more people become interested in sports and then starting to realize they might be good at something and then, and then you know, and then they're off and running? No pun intended. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I alluded to before, that particularly this 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 more recent wave of of, uh, of fitness and exercise and mass participation sports uh, has definitely kind of pushed people into into uh, just just becoming more healthy, be, be being more aware of what they're putting into their bodies, how they're looking after their bodies. Um, so you see that in so many different sections, whether, whether it's uh, food and nutrition or organic substances and, uh, and so on, whether that whether that really converts into top level professional or Olympic success is perhaps hard to say. But I think what is important is that China has always struggled to create grassroots sports. You look at soccer is probably the prime example. Everything here in China is top down. It is a top down society to have success in a sport like soccer. You need to build from the bottom up. And 
that contradiction is, is in large part what has prevented China from becoming a, a global soccer power, as it has many, many times declared it wants to be. Because if you don't have people playing at the lower levels, you're not going to have that pyramid. Um, China just looks and thinks, well, let's take the best people and, and train them to, to be at an elite level. That doesn't work in a sport that is as competitive globally as soccer is. You need to be able to fall down the pyramid a little bit, find your level, and then perhaps move back up and, and support those more professional levels through the semi, semi-professional tiers, a few rungs below and the amateur levels before that. You know, you look, you look at hockey in Canada, for example, you can't just have elite sport without the minor leagues and all the, you know, the beer leagues that, that to be honest, prop up everything in the pyramid. And, and that is something that, you know, hopefully organically we will begin to see over time here in China, but it takes a long, long time to build this. And when the policymakers look at, uh, at these things, they don't want to look for a 20 year horizon. They're looking at two and three and four years and they're looking for instant success and there just isn't instant success. It's not there. It cannot happen. Not when you're talking about the development of human beings, uh, particularly, you know, if, if you're looking at, if you're looking at, for example, uh, curling, and this is no disrespect to, uh, to, uh, you know, the curling nations around the world, but there aren't too many countries that, that really uh, practice curling on a regular basis. And so if China wants to, uh, you know, make 50 people or 100 people professional curlers, they could get fairly competitive on a four-year Olympic cycle. But, you know, pick a sport like like hockey or pick a sport like like soccer where you've got millions of players, you just can't catch up that quickly. And so, yes, we are seeing these tailwinds uh, and it will take time, but I would say these are more organic tailwinds from from social trends rather than policy trends which is which is sort of more focused on on the elite level in an ideal world you could have those organic wins um coming together with with the with the policy but i don't quite see them overlapping just yet so those tailwinds probably aren't coming directly from the south they're more of like a southwest or a southeast <laughs> right it's an indirect tailwind but last question before i want to go back to talking about what the upcoming olympics and i appreciate also that your 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 canadian half is is uh taking over your your british half when you're calling it soccer and not football however i'd like to talk a little bit about infrastructure because being Canadian, I know of the vast infrastructure updraft that we have when it comes to keeping our tiny 30 million nation uh, of people competitive in certain areas of sport like hockey, because even a town of 30, 40,000 people will have three ice rinks that are well used and full all year round. What about infrastructure in in China and even on a micro scale of infrastructure equipment? That's a great question. You know, I, I would I would just say say in the the difference in somewhere like Canada, not you don't just have those ice rinks, but you have the frozen ponds and the frozen backyards and you have areas where anyone can not just can, but but actually they they do pick up a sport and they play it from a young age. That is sort of the difference here in China. It's not yet in people's DNA 
to, to, to play sports. It, we're getting there slowly. We're seeing positive trends for sure, but you don't grow up just kicking a ball around in, in the back streets as you would in South America, as you would in Europe when it comes to, when it comes to football, for example. China has all the money in the world and the resources. And so when it comes to infrastructure, they could build ice rinks and they could build soccer stadiums like nowhere else. But it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to fill those. Um, so I would sort of focus more on, on how do we get people playing sports in a way that they actually genuinely want to Uh in the south of China, uh, one of the the big soccer teams is called uh, Guangzhou Evergrande, and they partnered with Real Madrid to have uh, a soccer academy. And it's one of, I think it's the largest soccer academy in the world. It's effectively a soccer boarding school and they have, you know, a, a huge number of, of fields and pitches and so on. And they got coaches over from, from, from Spain affiliated with Real Madrid. And I will never forget one of the, one of the coaches saying, you know, the thing that struck him when he was coaching Chinese kids to play soccer is that they were playing in silence. And he said that he had to actually encourage them to, to celebrate a goal. Uh, back in the West, you know, you're, you're telling people to calm down, you know, get back on with the game. Yeah, well done, well done. We, you scored, okay. Um, stop stop doing 15 laps of the field and taking your shirt off and so, and so on. Uh, in China, it was, it was the opposite, you know. And to me, that speaks to the fact that they're, they're being told to play soccer um, because they're playing soccer because they're being told to play soccer, not because they actually themselves genuinely want to. Uh, and that's a big difference. Of course, you know, there's plenty of people who like sports and I'm not saying, you know, everyone, everyone's um, sort of soulless and, and doesn't have opinions of their own and, and so on. But I think on a wider scale, those are some of, some of the big the big differences and uh, uh, comparisons that we see with with other nations. People don't just pick up um, a hockey stick and go out and play, or, or, or you know, kick a ball around in the streets. You don't see that nearly to the same degree. And I think that is where I would focus on on the development of sports here. Just just sport as 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 something that's fun, something that is that is positive, that is healthy, um, rather than you know. Let's focus on making a great team. And so let's let's find 30,000 kids to play this sport. You know, do those 30,000 kids want to play that sport? And, and if they don't really want to, even if they're good, are they are they really going to be into it? Are they going to develop in the same way um, as as kids overseas who are at, at the very heart of it doing something that they love? Two things you said there inspired me to ask one more question before uh, dipping into looking towards the 2022 Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing. You mentioned, uh, of course, the the silence that they they play in silence, which got me thinking. And then talking about picking up a hockey stick, and you can pick up a hockey stick, but picking up a hockey stick is only interesting if there are other hockey sticks and there are other people around who also want to pick up a hockey stick. And uh, I think any uh, lonely kid who's sat in the driveway shooting a ball into an empty net can attest it is so much more fun, even if you have a brother or sister, that you can dress up in some goalie gear and just shoot a ball at. So I want to know if you'd be willing to indulge me to juxtapose team sports versus individual sports and what that looks like in China. Yeah, 
not quite sure where to start with that one, but it is, it's a big one because you have the things like cycling and the, you know, cross country skiing and things like this, but then there are also all the team sports. And I'm curious, you know, if, if they're growing, one is growing faster than the other, if there's some cultural, you know, um, meanderings that, you know, might be worth talking about or exposing with regards to whether they're coachable, whether they like playing in a team, you know, playing on a team, often you have to be vocal on the court, on the ice, on the field in order to be able to, to play well and, and function and win. Well, there was one thing, let me start with, with, with one thing that you said, you know, playing with a sibling in the driveway. And of course, you know, as many people will be aware, Chinese kids uh, uh, until quite recently haven't had siblings. And so of course, yes, there's cousins and there's families and, and there are, you know, there are, there are, a number of families that, that that do have siblings, but but that has it's changed not just the way that the kids play and interact with each other, but also the way that 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 they've been educated and brought up at home. You know, with the fact with the with the parents sort of devoting themselves to those children rather than just letting the kids get on with it and and picking up entertaining themselves with with their siblings and with their friends and so on. And so I think that is is. It's certainly worth worth mentioning. In terms of the in terms of the, the the team sports versus the individual sports, there's so much to talk about here. But I think China has historically had a huge amount of success in the individual sports. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but but there is there is a certain amount of truth in this. You know, you if you train X number of of, of divers, for example, uh, and get them to repeat the same dive again and again and again. Someone will be the best, and the chances are that that person will be winning Olympic gold for 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 China. You know, we've seen this time and time again. Um, it, I was I was uh, intrigued to see a lot of the um, a lot of the other divers in Tokyo just this summer speak about the Chinese training program. Almost in awe, they were saying, "Yes, they work so hard." That the, the hidden message was. I don't think we could do that. Um, you know, we can't match them. They just train harder and, and better than they're just better than us because they work harder. And I think when you have that success and you have, you know, you know the, these diving champions to, to, to stick with one sport to, to illustrate the point, you know, coaches say, look, these people won because they did this. This is a tried and tested plan and it works. And unfortunately, they've tried to apply this to team sports as well in the way that it just doesn't work. There's one example I'll give you that was just, just kind of staggering to think about, but you know, the Chinese soccer players have, have not historically done, done that well. They've only been in the world cup once that was 2002 and they lost all three games. They didn't even score a goal, even though this was China's golden generation. They had a number of good players, some of whom um, played in the in the English Premier League. So they were legitimately good players, but at a national level, they, 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 they still weren't that good. When Chinese teams have not had success in soccer, the reaction from, from those above, particularly people who aren't necessarily experts on soccer, has been to say, well, clearly they didn't try hard enough. They didn't train hard enough. So... Let's get them to train more. Let's get them to run more. There was a there was a, a national team camp. I think this was the um, the under twenty five training camp a, a couple of years back, where effectively they were running the equivalent of a marathon, a whole marathon every single day. Um, and, and any any soccer coach or 
any sport coach will tell you that this massive overtraining, it's not going to benefit the players whatsoever, but this kind of military style training, because it has worked in sports like gymnastics and diving, um, they think, well, this is what we know. This is how China succeeds and we have the success to prove it, but it doesn't translate to these team sports. And, and so for me, it's, it's, moving away from that mentality in the individual sports where, to be honest, this single-minded determination and focus can actually get you Olympic gold. If if you are, you know, more determined and, and training harder than, than than anyone else, that could win out in, in an individual sport. And and so it's no surprise that you look at um the uh the 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 top the top six sports that I mentioned uh where where China has had its success. And um that has, you know, but that has been unable to translate to the team sports. Thank you very much for indulging me along that. Let's <laughs> move to looking forward to the 2022 Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing. Let's hit this trifold looking forward. OK, so what are the sports that Chinese citizens are most excited about? Is there buzz in China yet already upcoming planned for you know the the 22 games compared to 2008 and then you know podium wise or just outcome wise what are the expectations so what are we excited about where's the buzz is there buzz and then what are the expectations it's such a different event i think to to 2008 Uh, of course that was the first olympics and as you mentioned the, the the summer games are so much larger um I think the messaging here in China around these games, because of COVID, they very much changed to uh, to being simple and healthy, and those is, that's kind of become the messaging. So, uh, basically, playing it down as much as possible, uh, trying to trying to put on a safe games. So that has, I think, dampened the buzz to a certain extent because. You know, when you think of the Olympics, you think huge extravaganza. Well, people aren't talking about that. They're deliberately. Uh, playing 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 that down uh, of course the buzz will pick up when we get to the end of the year uh, and we start moving into the the home stretch and and as we get to the winter season we can start to see some of these test events which are we hope going to be rescheduled for uh for the for the later part of this year ahead of the olympics which start on february 4th i'm sure there will be buzz but it's just not going to be quite the same. It's not going to be anything like the same as as uh, as two thousand eight was, and that's okay. There's uh, you know there's, there's reasons that are outlined for that. In terms of expectations, again, I think this will be kind of led by by those at the top. They'll play down the expectations. China knows that it's not a particularly strong winter sports nation. They'll want to have their best ever performance. I think uh, I'm certain of that. Whether they will or not is is still kind of up for debate. The goal that China has set is not so much medals. It's just to have one competitor in every single discipline. Uh, if you look at the uh, look in the past, you know China hasn't had um, it hasn't had uh, athletes in, in in all the disciplines. For example, cross country skiing and ski jumping and so on. And so, if they can get at least one competitor in, in every single event, I think that would be a huge success. Um, now, of course. Some of these would, uh, 
in no way would, would many of these athletes be challenging for medals, but you just never know. Um, I think there's been so much uncertainty, not just for Chinese athletes, but but uh, but for athletes all around the world in terms of training, the reduced number of competitions. We don't know how athletes are going to perform in Beijing next February. And I think we saw this with, with a lot of surprise. Some of the uh, the the best Grace No Sports is is one of the um uh, they're kind of under the Nielsen sports divisions and they basically predict they have a virtual medal table and, and it's pretty interesting. They generally do a pretty accurate job, but they did say for this year in particular with the Chinese team, because of COVID, because the, the team were pretty much restricted to training at home for at least a year before Tokyo, they had no idea the kind of form that Chinese athletes were in coming into Tokyo. And so there's a huge amount of uncertainty. I think that is the same for, for the Winter Olympics. We just don't know who the form athletes are going to be. Uh, we don't know how good they're going to be. I would say that they would probably uh, outperform in terms of surprising. But um, the Olympics, more than more than anything else, because because it's just that four year cycle, you don't really know who's who's going to be who's going to be a challenger. And this is this is only being uh, heightened this year because of because of the reasons I just mentioned. So um, a lot of unknowns on on so many different fronts, logistically, as well as as well as uh, on the field of play. But I think the buzz will pick up. We're just we're just not feeling it just yet. Um, but as I said, that that's kind of deliberate at the moment here in China. Do you think there was an impact from the Tokyo Games getting pushed to 2021? And I, you know, potentially that just the world hasn't had a chance to breathe, relax, and then get recyced and, and reamped up for another Olympics because now they're so close together for the first time in history. I don't know. I would say perhaps that that's actually helped Beijing because mm. instead of being there being a huge gap between the games, it's sort of uh, you know moving from one to the next. And so, I think Tokyo generally was a huge success. Uh, judging from from compared with with how people were talking about it beforehand, uh, I think there were comparatively uh, very few. COVID cases, it, certainly in terms of athletes and, and competition being affected. Yes, it was it was desperately disappointing not to have fans and and, and so on. But it, in terms of a TV spectacle, I think it, it it went off as well as it could have done. And so that has created, in my mind, a, a fair amount of positive momentum that the Olympic movement can will seek to carry into Beijing. Now, of course, there's going to be some political headwinds. Uh, which we will get into uh, in the next few months for sure. There will be a lot of uh, criticism of uh, of the Beijing Olympics all around the world uh, in the coming months, and so that's going to be a challenge. But in terms of the sporting side of things, I, th I think uh, having Tokyo fairly well just six months before uh, potentially uh, can be used to Beijing's advantage. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. Speaking of the pandemic and COVID-19, uh, you know, throwing a lot of wrenches into the works for the Tokyo Games, looks like there are going to be some potential disruption to the Beijing Games as well, because we are just not getting through this as fast as obviously anybody in the world would like. So, you know, with everything from from training to fans in the stands, you know, what do you expect the games, uh, the 22 Winter Olympics in Beijing to look like? First of all, I would say for Olympic fans who are not currently in China, don't expect to be able to buy tickets and come in to, to watch the games. I think it's 
almost a certainty at this point that like Tokyo, Beijing will not allow overseas spectators because the, the border policy right now is so restrictive. They're already going to be dealing with thousands of athletes and coaches and officials and media coming in. They will want to keep that as small a number as possible. And as I said, Tokyo has already kind of lowered the bar, I suppose you could say, in, in certain ways. And so there's no incentive whatsoever for Beijing to, to, to change that. The big question is, will there be, will there be domestic fans? Um, I just don't know at this stage. There's so many unknowns. I could see a scenario where for some of the outdoor events, um, if you're not too far away, you know, for uh, lining the ski hills, you could have some fans in uh, in in the in the bleachers there, for example. But then when you get to indoor events, you know, there's noises coming out of China where they're talking about keeping the athletes separate from the media, who will be separate from the from from the from the officials and and the the judges and so on. And so in this kind of extreme bubble scenario, I just can't see how you could have fans in the stands you know imagine a hockey arena well you you know unless you would literally seal off the ice with with a kind of a, a perspex roof or something like that like how do you move to move the risk to zero in terms of potential infection i think from the chinese perspective the worry is athletes and uh, and other people come in from overseas bring in covid-19 and then that gets transmitted to people in the stands who then bring it back out into the population. That is kind of the health and safety aspect that they would be looking at, whether you think that's right or wrong, that that's, that would be their, their perspective. So with that in mind, it's very hard to, to see how you're going to have fans uh, in some of these closed arenas, unless, you know, only somewhere like China could do this, but, but it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that they could have thousands of fans, domestic spectators who then, go to attend games and then quarantine for a couple of weeks or three weeks before going back out into the general population. I mean, it sounds crazy. Um, but I think those are, those are some of the things that potentially as of now, uh, that we're looking at uh, as being an option for, for next year. Yeah. It, it's definitely going to be a little bit difficult. Last question on this, then what does success given everything that we've discussed including, you know, some of the difficulties in, in pulling off a really strong Olympics given the pandemic. What does success for these games look like and to whom uh, do you think that that success will be achieved? It's a great question. And it really depends on on whose perspective you're looking at this from. Uh, are you talking the IOCs? Are you talking China? Are you talking the global sporting world? Uh, I think China will do what it needs to do to have a, a, a safe Olympics. Um, I think, as I, as I mentioned, Tokyo generally was very successful, um, even though from a Chinese perspective, they probably thought, well, there were far too many cases uh, in, in and around the Olympic bubble. And, and, and so we're going to need to, to, to raise, raise the levels of, of health and safety several notches. Will it be a fun Olympics? Um, I, I honestly, right now, I don't know. Um, I don't think it would be particularly fun for for journalists to cover. That's not the main priority for for for, for most people. I know, but um, you know, with with so many restrictions in place and so much uncertainty, I don't know. But but you know, if 
if success is judged on getting these games in the books and done and completed, I think China will do a good job, uh, probably better than anyone else could do. And so, so on that perspective, yes, it's just very hard to know. And, and the question I keep asking myself is, you know, what is the priority? What is the priority for China? Um, is it to it is it to put on a big Olympics for the for the rest of the world? Is it to put on uh, a great Olympics for their own domestic population? Is it a bit of both? I go back and forth between between some of those uh, different answers. I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about this, um, but this. You know the reason I'm the reason I'm asking these questions is is I think to answer your question, what does success look like? You know who who are we talking about? Are we talking about for for the Beijing government? Are we talking for for the Chinese government? And again, the different parties here. You've got the Beijing government, which will have very different priorities to the the central government, and then you've got the organizing committee, then you've got the IOC, then you've got the athletes and and, and fans all around the world, and the broadcasters, uh, and so on, and so. You know, for each one of those groups, success, I think, would be a very different thing. And you could probably have an hour long debate on each one. <laughs> I'm not trying to hedge my bets here, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's 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 complicated. It's complicated. And so many, so many unanswered questions with with less than six months to go. It's it's unprecedented. It really is. Um, that's what makes it fascinating to to kind of examine and, and try and analyze. But but it's hard to tell you. Well, we are going to be talking about uh, the Olympics a lot um, heading up to it, especially on this podcast. Um, you know, thanks to you, Mark, for for jumping on and kind of being the the first guest that we brought in to start probably quite the array of, of guests and discussions around how things are and what the lead up is looking like and what all the contributing factors are looking like uh, as far as the success of the Winter Olympics in Beijing are coming up here soon. Last question for you. Who are one or two other people that you would even enjoy listening to uh, that uh, would be a good guest and you'd like to hear their perspective on China talked about on this show? Can you give us one or two names of somebody that uh, that you think would make a good guest on the show? Sure. Um, as you said that, that, I think the first person that came to mind is is the athlete Eileen Gu. <laughs> um, I... I uh, don't know. There would be ways to reach her. I don't have any contact for her, but um, you know, she is. She's still a teenager, but she's incredibly successful. You know, she's 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 perfectly. You know, bilingual, bicultural. Has competed for the U.S. team. Has competed now for the Chinese team. So, in terms of you know, you've got the whole sports side of things, but then you've got the whole like geopolitical angle. You know. Is she someone who could who could potentially build some bridges um, despite a very tricky <laughs> um, bilateral relationship? You know, I I think potentially she can. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, that that's sort of the first person that would come to mind. Um, I'd also I'd love to hear from. This is more of a, this is more of a uh, unrealistic in terms of someone for the podcast, but anyone from kind of you know the Beijing organizing committee. Um, historically, they're they're not going to give too much away or kind of put themselves up for um for Q and A. But perhaps 
as things get closer, there might be more engagement with 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 global media in terms of you know how things are going to look and and all that sort of things. Um, so that might be an angle as well. I think would be very interesting because um, there's so much to ask in terms of uh, well, just just a lot of the a lot of the challenges that people are people are particularly from a non-sporting perspective, you've got political challenges, you've got COVID challenges, all that side of thing, uh, side of things that, that people will have to look at um, in the way that normally at Olympics, you have enough sporting challenges <laughs> by themselves. But uh, for this one, it's, it's just layers and layers of challenges on top of each other. Mark Dreyer, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciated your time and all your insights and expertise. Really, really great chat. Thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure entirely. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.